Welcome to the Review Me Name podcast. This is a Bad News Bears edition of the show. I am racked with a horrible head cold. Chris has his standard hangover. And we've got a brand new face on the show, for those of you who don't read the website. Um, Darren, our music editor, is joining us for the day. Darren, say hello to everybody. Hello, everybody. And Chris, why don't you give everybody a hey? Hey. So, we are falling apart over here at the podcast, but today on the show we're going to talk about uh, the standard news roundup from the week. We're going to discuss uh, Mumford and Sons' new album, Babel. We're going to play a little Would You Rather, and we're going to discuss the new Bruce Willis, Joseph Gordon-Levitt movie, Looper. So, uh, with all of that coming up, stick with us throughout the hour. Why don't we go ahead and start the news roundup? Um, I think the first thing that came out this week that was kind of interesting was uh, Billy Joe Armstrong's freak out um, on stage when he was about to be cut off at a music festival, I believe, in Vegas. And uh, went on a tirade against the festival promoters and Justin Bieber. Um, so, Chris, what did you think about all that? Um, I actually was only found out about it a couple days after it had happened. I was not paying that much attention to the festival, so I only heard about it when clips started surfacing on uh, Facebook a few days later. Uh, so I was late to the party. But uh, after watching it, I... Uh, I thought it was cool. I mean, I thought it was a real rock and roll moment. Like, it was a justified freak out, and, you know, I it's kind of what I expect from... I mean, you could go into, like, how much you want to call, like, Billy Joe a classic rock star and, like, the traditional model, but it was it was definitely, I felt, a rock and roll moment. Um, the weird thing, though, is, like, I don't know where Justin Bieber came into the whole thing. It just, like, it seemed like, you know, just something he had been kind of holding on to for a while, and Justin Bieber just kind of got <laughs> caught in the crossfire. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, I, I thought think it was probably some long-standing Bieber anger there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's who who is he being bumped for? Um, was it Kanye? Um, I believe so. I I wasn't also wasn't Usher? following too closely. I Usher, just, yeah, no, Usher. Darren's right. It was Usher. Yeah, I was just I just watched the the video of the freak out itself. Yeah. So I mean, again, it seems like Justin Bieber kind of got unfairly drawn into that. But <laughs> man, I thought <laughs> it was kind of a cool moment. Um, thumbs up to Billy Joe for me. Uh, Darren. I haven't really heard about it in passing. I didn't watch a video or read too much about it. I thought it was more a thing where, like, his set was being cut short by Usher, so he just kind of went on a rant about that. But I didn't know the whole Bieber aspect. But Yeah, well, my understanding is that uh, Green Day actually showed up late, and so they they didn't start their set until 25 minutes late, and so they were cut off at the end of their time um, because it was Usher's time, which is a, a problem that a lot of music festivals have with a lot of people flying in is, you know, bands won't get there till late, they won't get to start till late, but the festival needs to stay on schedule, or you know, acts will just get bumped entirely. So, it's something that happens. When I was at Coachella last year, CeeLo got, only got to play two songs. Of course, he played the two CeeLo songs he wanted to play, but um, he was pretty upset, and uh, he got cut off during a cover of Don't Stop Believing that I think was going to be awesome. So, as a as a music festival attendee, occasionally I can see the frustration uh, from Billy Joe, but also like maybe calm it down a little bit. He has been in the business for long enough to know this is the sort of thing that's going to happen occasionally. Um, so I don't know if I would go so far as to give him the uh, rock and roll thumbs up that Chris gives him, but uh, he's going to rehab after that. So apparently, um, either it's a publicity stunt, you know, that well I screwed up. Now let me go to rehab for a while so it looks better, or he's getting some help that he might have needed. So I guess thumbs up on that front. <laughs> <laughs> why don't we why don't we move on move on to another <coughs> negative story from the week 
with uh, Chevy Chase once again bagging on community um, in an interview with uh, The Guardian saying things like, oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't The Guardian, it was The Huffington Post UK, um, saying things like sitcoms are the lowest form of television, doing community was a big mistake, um, he's not working with the great innovators of all time, he doesn't like the hours, he prefers making movies. The one thing he did say that was positive was that he likes Donald Glover, um, who, said, who he says is a talented improviser. Oh, and also, while he was on it, he said he probably doesn't think Louis C.K. is funny. <laughs> so, thoughts on that, Chris? I mean, it's obvious to anybody who watches the show that Chevy Chase is not the draw that I think uh, NBC was promoting him as when they first started advertising the show. I mean, I, I don't remember the exact uh, promos they were running, but I think they all ended with, with Chevy Chase, and he kind of like walking in the room and that, you know, classic sitcom like and credit style way um but it's yeah i mean it's no secret that chevy chase is not happy on that show and never has been happy on that show and doesn't really feel comfortable uh amidst the rest of the cast um so i i'm not really surprised by any of this but you know you gotta kind of take the comments with a grain of salt because it's like you can tell he's not quite as adept with the material as the rest of the cast is because he, he's just not an improviser he it's is married to his scripts. I think at least a good portion of the rest of the cast really are very talented improvisers and just play off each other a lot to a better degree well, than I think Chevy Chase does when he gets into the mix. I, I wouldn't say it's that he's not a good improviser necessarily. It's that he's a different improviser. If you watch a lot of the behind the scenes stuff on the DVDs or if you read a lot of the interviews, it seems like Chevy always has certain jokes in mind that he wants to do. And when the script doesn't go that way or when, the, you know, the, the improvisations don't go that way, he just tries to shoehorn in his joke and doesn't work out too well. So I think he's used to being sort of center stage and doing a lot more physical comedy than the show lets him do. So I definitely, yeah, I agree with that. Um, Darren, do you watch Community? I have not watched Community yet. Uh, you hear very good things about it from Chris. And from an outsider's perspective, all I can gather from Community is that it's this legendarily funny show that just has a lot of problems off camera. <laughs> yeah, that's that's pretty accurate, and I would say you should check it out. Um, my thing is, at this point, I, just, I think of Chevy Chase sort of like the, you know, grumpy old grandfather character. You know, he's he's always complaining, he's always a little bit pissed off, he's, he's curmudgeonly. Um, yes, yes, he, curmudgeonly is the best word for him. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's sort of his thing at this point, which... It's fine. I'm used to it. Um, if if I thought that Chevy Chase was responsible for Dan Harmon no longer being on Community, it would not be okay. But I don't think that was the case. I think Dan Harmon's problems with the studio is why he's no longer on Community. Um, so I can't blame Chevy Chase for that. And, you know, I can blame him for being a dick, but he's always been a dick. Way back when he was the star of Saturday Night Live, you know, he was a giant dick. And that's... People have always known that about him. So it's not surprising. And, you know... It seems like the cast has always taken it with a grain of salt that Chevy Chase was going to be a little bit of an asshole and um, that he was going to be worth it to work with. I don't know if the latter part of that has worked out as well as they might have thought. Um, though I think that Chevy Chase has been good on the show when he's been required to be. I think that the the darker Pierce arc in season two was really good work from him. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm glad that he's staying around the show even though he's apparently miserable. <laughs> I, I am too because, like, I've grown to love the ensemble and although I don't think he is... Um, I, what, what I'm trying to say, what I was trying to say earlier is I don't think people 
watch the show for Chevy Chase. Like, I don't think, I, I think they tried to sell a little bit. I think NBC tried to sell community with his star power at first, but I think the fans that discovered community and stuck with community stayed with it because they love all seven or if how you ever you want to debate it, nine of the main cast so much that it's not that Chevy Chase's opinions on it don't really mean much at all. I'm sorry that he's unhappy, but, I mean, I, it looks like he's staying with it for now, so at the end of the day, I don't really think this is going to affect anything one way or the other. Yeah, he's staying with it for the, you know, 13 episodes we'll probably get before it implodes. Yeah, let's not think <laughs> about that too much. Um, no, my, uh, my tears are real. Actually, they're not, because like, I don't have tears. But if, <laughs> if I did, they would be. Um, why don't we move on to some more upbeat news. Joel McHale has said he's sticking with the soup. Uh, he's signing a new contract, and he's going to be with the show for a while. Um, so, again, not sure that this really affects the prognosis for Community, because he was on the soup the entire time that Community was a show. But it doesn't necessarily bode well for the show. Um, but it does bode well for fans of the soup. Chris, where do you fall on this? I'm a huge fan of the soup, so I'm glad to see Joel McHale sticking with it. Uh, it's just it's reliably just something great and funny midweek, and just something I can always count on. Um, and while we're talking about community, I think one of the things that I really have to say in support of the soup is that um, they always do these um, guest star plugs on the soup. Like someone famous will come by, and there'll be like a really dumb reason for them to be there, and then they'll promote whatever they're promoting. Uh, when Community's renewal was up in the air. You had the cast of Community on the show weekly. So the Soup and the producer of the Soup and the E! Network really just allowed Joel McHale to really just push the show as much as possible to those viewers. And I thought that was really cool. Um, so bottom line, I'm happy that Joel McHale is back with the Soup because I think he really makes it to a degree. I mean, I never really saw the old version of it, but I enjoy Joel McHale so much. Uh, just happy to have him still there and looking forward to continuing to watch The Soup. Awesome. Darren, are you a soup guy? I watch The Soup, uh, the soup when Chris does, and I really like it. Uh, I don't watch it, you know, every week it comes out at times, usually just because I'm out and about. I'm a busy man. And, uh, of course. <laughs> but I do love what I see, and I'm glad because Joe McHale was a really good fan of that show. It seemed to, you know, because it's a lot of culture, it seems that the host can really make it or break it, and I definitely think that Joel McHale is one of the better people I've ever seen host a cook show. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not a huge fan of The Soup, just because I don't like the clip show format in general, and I don't watch reality TV or any of the things that's mocking, so I feel like I'm, I'm missing out on the joke a little bit. Um, but I've always thought that Joel McHale is a very game presence on the show, and when I have watched it, he's made it worthwhile. Um... I can tell you right now that I watch The Soup occasionally with Joel McHale, and that I would watch it never if he wasn't hosting it. So, I'm glad he's sticking with it, because that means next time I, I catch an episode, I will watch it. Um, this is sort of, we're sort of circling the drain on this throughout the uh, news roundup, but NBC, um, the ever-sinking, never-hitting rock-bottom network, <laughs> is developing some very interesting new television uh, shows that we may or may not ever see, obviously, because they're early in development. Um... We've got a show based on the Hugh Grant film and Nick Hornby novel about a boy, a show based on Wuthering Heights, the oft-adapted novel, and a show based on Tom Edison as a crime fighter, um, which we all know we've been waiting for for years. Um, finally, the truth about Thomas Edison being a crime fighter is going to be revealed. Um, what do you think about these slew of shows, Chris? 
Um, we can go through them individually in a second, but uh, just listening to your rundown right now and thinking about what NBC is currently airing, I think that NBC's defining characteristic right now is a bit of a search for identity, uh, which they seem to be struggling with at the moment. I mean, if you if you think about the shows ABC is airing, it's like it all kind of makes sense. Like this all kind of belongs together on the ABC network. Same thing with Fox. CBS is like the home of the procedural. ABC is more like uh, shows that feature families in the lead or strong yeah, female protagonists. Yeah, or it's slightly soapier. Lead. Yeah. Whereas NBC, like just based on that lineup there, like I, I am hard pressed to tell you what NBC is thinking their identity is right now, other than just adapting anything they can get their hands on. Well, um, frankly, I think it's a sense of desperation at this point. Yes. <laughs> I mean, this season we've seen them do the We Peacock comedy, which doesn't even make any sense. Like, <laughs> I hadn't heard that. We you Peacock oh, you comedy. Seen that? All of their so instead of like I Heart comedy, it's a peacock symbol. Yeah. So I Peacock comedy. Which, I, I don't know, like, what they think that the I heart thing means, but it doesn't mean you could just throw any symbol in there and we'll go, oh, okay. <laughs> um, and they've been going broader and broader with their shows. Um, go On and Animal Practice being the two new NBC sitcoms that I stopped in with, and both are hugely broad. One of them has a monkey veterinarian, so, like, that's yeah. the level of broad they're going right now. Uh, and it's not like that's taking off incredibly. It's not, n- neither show has tanked horribly yet, yet being the operative word, but um, that's not really showing NBC a new way forward at this point. So I think what they're going to do is keep throwing things out there to see what sticks, um, to see if anyone watches their network. At this point, they really don't have anything to lose, so... Yeah, I'm kind of reminded of um, the, uh, the I mean, not NBC in general, but uh, their Thursday night, there, there, was a, there was a brief amount of time like where their Thursday night was gone for a little while because they were just trying to reestablish it. I think all they had was The Office. And then after like a season where I think all they had was the office, they came back with Parks and Rec and Community and built up the Thursday lineup again. I, I might be wrong on this timetable. I just seem to remember there was a time where the only thing I could remember being on NBC Thursday night was the office. Um, well, Parks and Rec had its had its short season before Community started, but they both, you know, Parks and Rec's full season, season two, and Community season one were at the same time. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's it'll be interesting to see which one of these if any of them actually make it to a pilot, let alone being picked up for a full season order. Um, the Thomas Edison one is something that could sound interesting on a network like maybe FX or something like that, something where like you could maybe not take it the route that I think they're probably going to take it, wherein like he probably helps out the cops with scientific evidence and he's the forensics lab of his time or something like that but if it was more of like a like a doctor who flavor to it like thomas edison secretly fights mad scientists and aliens sort of thing i think that could be an interesting show like just not taking itself too seriously just kind of like a little bit out there sci-fi ridiculousness but that's not what it's going to be um yeah probably not um i completely agree with you on that i think uh I mean, I think it's a silly premise, but I think all of these, like, this historical figure does, this thing is a, is a stupid premise, and that really doesn't matter as long as it's good, right? I mean, ultimately, if, if they came up with a cool twist on Tom Edison as a crime fighter, I wouldn't care that it was kind of a stupid stretch of a premise. I would yeah. watch it. Yeah. Um, um, I, I think About a Boy is the one that would most excite me, theoretically, because, A, I love the book, I like the Hugh Grant movie. And I think it makes sense as a, as a show. Um, you know, I, I can see that being a week-to-week. Like, 
this guy is sort of a, a misanthrope, but he's gonna help this kid. You know, it seems like a standard sitcom plot. Um, and so I could see that working as a show. I don't, I don't see it as a particularly great show, but I could see it working. Whereas Wuthering Heights, I, I don't know what they think they're gonna do with that. Yeah, I, I'm a little bit of a mystery. That is it gonna be period, or is it gonna be updated for modern times? I assume it'll be a period piece. Yeah. That's, I don't know. I mean, if they updated it for modern times, that would be even like, it would have even less of a point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, the problem with updating a novel, especially when like Wuthering Heights is like, you've got your particular plot lines that are, that are going to be obviously center stage, but there's sort of a, an immediate timetable, which is like, these things happen, then the story's over. Yeah. It's not and, really, it's not really a sustainable plot. I mean, like you would have to kind of have an end game in mind. I mean, this could become like, if, on the off chance it did take off and it was popular, this could become like an exercise in frustration akin to how I met your mother for like trying to stretch things out. I mean, it's right. not I mean, that there long are, a book. There are some novels where I think you could do a TV show. You know, it's dead now, but for a while they were going to do Jonathan Franzen's The Corrections on HBO. Okay. That's, that's, a, that's a novel that, you know, has plenty of plot points, plenty of, it's an expansive cast doing a lot of different things. And also I can see that premise being more like, a starting point for a longer story that's not necessarily directly based on the novel. Wuthering Heights, I don't, I just don't see it. Um, you know, I, maybe a miniseries, um, but yeah. I don't see this as a, as, I don't see like, ooh, are you guys going to watch Wuthering Heights season four? Yeah. Um, and also HBO just knows when to let things die. Like if it needs to, like knows when to end things. Um, Speaking of I mean, which, just, um, I wanted, I did want to mention that Treme is going to have a brief fourth season. I don't know if any of you have been watching that, but uh, it's a show that's going to end. But go ahead. Oh, it's on my list. I want to watch it um, at some point. It's not a high priority. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, like we've been saying this for a while, we're a little bit uh, anxious. Not anxious, I don't think that's the right word. We're just kind of wondering where ABC, NBC is going. It just kind of seems to be lost in the woods right now. Um I mean, any of these shows, none of them really excites me or is like, I think I would check out. And I don't think I can really say that about anything NBC is airing right now. Um, yeah, it's it's really been like a shame to watch NBC fall the way it has because yeah. that, they were they were my go-to network as a kid, you know? Absolutely. I watched Musty TV Thursday all the way growing up. Um, and they, they had some of the best comedies on television, you know? They're killing community right now. Parks and Rec is, is hopefully going to get at least one more season after this. Uh, 30 Rock is about to leave. But if you, I mean, you talk about those three shows, for the last several years, community, uh, NBC has had some of the greatest comedies on television in its lineup. And still, it's just been falling apart. Um, and that's just that. I, I mean, they, at times, they've been a great place to go for drama as well. And I will, of course, point to the West Wing right there. For, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that um, the problem is they just, they've, they've lost a sense of identity, like you were saying. And they've never known exactly how to uh, promote community and parks and rec and 30 rock to success but also to be fair to them i think those shows are coming about in an era of television that is more niche based it's more about finding a small slice of audience that's going to be loyal to you and networks don't know how to do that yet yeah. so community is a show um that i think i would i would i would say is akin to louis in terms of appeal where you're never going to get 100 million people well that's ridiculous you're never going to get 20 million people to sit down and watch community on any given week um and that's what nbc thinks of as a model for success and that's just not going to happen with the show like community. So I think maybe they were just looking at the shows in the wrong way, or maybe they just haven't quite adapted to how they're going to make uh, the new way television works work for them. Yeah. And I definitely don't think that the 
throw things at the wall, see what sticks approach is the way to go about it. But, um, yeah, so not very excited about any of these upcoming shows. Darren, do any of these shows particularly strike your interest, or? You uh, agree? truthfully, not particularly, no. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just, like, listening to this, and what? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that, that's okay, we're saying this, thinking, what? Yeah. <laughs> like, this really doesn't make any sense at all. Um, but, again, it's, these are all shows that have been announced as in development, which in TV speak means we may never, ever hear from them again. Um, there's a chance that all three of these will be pilots in fall 2013. There's a chance that this is the last time any of these will ever be a project. Um, so who knows? With that, why don't we move on um, to a, a big bit of comics news for fans of Grant Morrison, who um, has been talking about doing a series called Multiversity for, what I think, about five years now. Um, and has announced, at least theoretically, that Multiversity will finally be coming out uh, in 2013. Chris, as our comics guy, what do you think about this? Well, let's emphasize the word theoretically here. I mean, I'm hopeful about this announcement, but this is not the first time that this series has been announced. But this is the first time that I feel like it's been announced with any kind of weight where I can actually tentatively say, okay, I think this will be the date where we finally see this thing. Um it's going to be a really cool series. It's basically going to be a uh, eight issue miniseries jam session with Grant Morrison and all of his favorite artists working together, um, basically kind of just doing whatever they want. Like they're using the sort of um, alternate parallel worlds concept to basically tell any kind of story that they want, each story featuring a different world um, where it, the DC characters aren't quite what we know or recognize. Um, so this series has been in the works for a while. It's, if you like Grant Morrison, this is going to be Grant Morrison at his most Morrison-esque. So if it's happening in 2013, awesome, because it's been a long time coming. Yeah, I, um, I remember reading about this long before I'd ever even read a comic. I mean, this has been a thing for a while. Oh, yeah. And, um, as someone who's now read a good portion of Grant Morrison's, uh, oeuvre, I'm really excited for it. I think this is the type of series that'll be really good for his his skill set and let him be the the weird, you know, um, genius that he is. Yeah, he's, I think Morrison is at his best when he's just throwing things at the wall uh, a million miles a minute. Um, and I don't mean throwing things at the wall like NBC is throwing things at the wall. <laughs> Morrison is just throwing out ideas like nobody's business when he's when he is at the top of his game. And this sounds like the type of uh, series that will allow him to do that. Absolutely. And what's even more exciting is that the first issue will be illustrated by Morrison, I think arguably Morrison's favorite collaborator, Frank Quietly. So I am beyond excited to see these two back together again. As am I, as a huge fan of their run on New X-Men, um, and of Quietly in general, I think it's going to be great to see. Yeah, these two just bring out the best in each other, so I'm <clears> really <throat> excited for that, and the entire series as a whole. All right, well, uh, we'll be wrapping up the news roundup now. Um, as, as always, we have our dedicated staff tallying up the votes throughout the show and we'll get back to you with the uh winner of the rachel tardiff memorial award for best performance of the week a little later in the show um but now we're going to turn things over and talk to uh talk about mumford and sons new album mumford and sons came on the scene uh in 2010 with their album sign no more that became sort of a huge mega hit and so there's been a lot of expectations around uh their sophomore release Babel. uh among them it made uh the review names 2012 things to look forward to list earlier in the year so this has been something that we've had our eye on for a while and we figured we'd check in with it um 
The album is Babel. And uh, why don't we start things off? Darren, um, our music editor, has joined us today specifically to talk to us about what he thinks about Babel. So, Darren, why don't we start with you and we'll sort of bat it back and forth what we think about the album. Okay. Um, so, Mumford and Sons in 2010, I didn't really listen to them too much. I heard, uh, you know, Little Lion Man on the radio and I truthfully wasn't that big a fan of them. And my one uh, criticism was always I couldn't get too much into the singer's voice, but I thought that their instrumentation was very good with the banjo and all. I really liked that, the banjo. And there was yeah, they used the banjo very well. <laughs> yeah, they I wish I wish every band used a banjo in every song, every <laughs> single one. But um. Yeah, there was another single off of Simon Moore. I don't know the name of it. It sounded a little like the Lion Man, but I actually kind of the cave, I think. Maybe I'll look that up after this. And uh, yeah, I. So what I'm saying is, in 2010, I didn't really buy into all the hype around the album. I'm like, "Eh." I just, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't smitten, as I say. Sure. So um. You know, when I heard Babel or, or Babel? It says Babel in the song. I don't know. Uh, when, well, I mean, the word is Babel. Yeah. It's There's all sorts of biblical symbolism throughout the album. Is there? So I'm going to go ahead and guess they're talking about the Tower of Babel. Yeah. It's just throw off because in the first track he sings Babel like Babel. So. Great job, Mr. <clears throat> Mumford. That strikes one, two, and three right there. Um, but yeah, so I got the album, I guess, a week ago, and I've been listening to it quite a bit since, and I honestly, you know, I'm pleasantly surprised. I I don't feel ashamed when I listen to it as much anymore. Um, even though, you know, there's, there does seem to be a lot of hype around this album as well. Uh, a lot of people are thinking it's one of the best albums of 2012 so far. I'm kind of, eh, on that, but it's not bad. It's, uh, let me try to talk not about generalizations. Um, the singer's voice, it sounds a little rougher in this album. Not as, like, polished and, I guess, I don't know, pop-sounding, radio-friendly. That makes me, that probably makes me sound like a douchebag. Um, <laughs> yeah, they still have the banjo going, which is great. Um... One of my critiques about the album is I've listened to it quite a number of times so far, and there's kind of a stretch of tracks in the beginning that kind of blend together. And I'm not sure what that means exactly when, you know, I can't really cut tracks apart, but yeah, I generally think it's mean that it can't really, you know, they, songs might seem a little formulaic at times. Yeah, um, I think it, I think there is a sameness to it. I definitely see that. Um, my my thinking on it, so I guess a little bit of my background, uh, since you gave your background with the band, I uh, was introduced to the band by my little brother, actually, which is uh, something he's never let me live down. He loved them from the moment the album came out. I was a little more tepid on them until I saw them at Coachella last year, and they just were so amazing live that I was suddenly just um, a huge fan of the band. Uh, and I think that's been the experience a lot of people have had. I, I think they've got a reputation as a live band more than an al- uh, albums band. Um, 
So it's hard for me to say, like, I, I love or I hate Babel without having seen it done live, since apparently they're so much better that way. But I don't think that's really a fair, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's fair to judge based only on the live performance when they're also putting out albums. And as an album, um, I think you hit it on the head when you said it's not bad. Um, I've been listening to a lot of music in 2012, uh, a lot more than I ever have before. And I can, I can say um, I don't think that Babel is really in contention to be one of my top albums of the year. Um, yeah, me neither. It's it's fine. It's um, I listen to this, and if I listen to it back to back with Sino More, it's not as good as Sino More, which is you know that's I think it's a very that's a very good album. Um, and so I wouldn't call this a sophomore slump, but I could definitely see why they might maybe not execute quite as well the second time. And it seems like they're they're trying to do exactly what they did on Sino More, sort of recreating the magic, if you will. Um, and I don't think they did. Also. I mean, religious symbolism aside, throughout the album, lyrically, I think that Babel's a disappointment. Um, where Sign of More was not lyrically brilliant by any stretch, it was very solid, I thought. Um, Babel has all sorts of uh, lyrics that make me very confused. Um, my personal favorite, after having listened to the album several times, is off of the single uh, I Will Wait. Uh, the opening line, Well, I came home like a stone. I don't understand what that means. And I don't think it means anything. Yeah, I will wait with the uh, single choice, and I'm I'm not sure it was the best single choice in that. I, it didn't really stand out to me too too much from the album. No, to me, I think "Lover of Light" is the is the obvious choice for a single off of the album. Yeah, "Lover um, of Light" is a pretty good song. I thought um, both the opener "Babel" or "Babel" would have made a pretty good single. Yeah, I, I could see that. Um, I mean, I think "Lover of Light" is the one that's that's the most in line with their sign on more success, um, but also is good on its own merits in a way that a lot of the rest of the album feels like, well, this sounds okay, but not necessarily like, you know, as good as what you were doing before. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I would say Mumford & Sons, Babel is, uh, it's a fine album. Fans of the band are probably going to like it, you know, it's, it's a lot oh, more of, yeah. of sign on more. It's, it's the same basic structure to all the songs. There's a lot of the banjo in there, which is, again, like you said, the instrumentation is never Mumford & Sons problem. Yeah. They, I mean, it's beautiful instrumentation on Babel as well. The banjo is utilized very well, which is something you don't hear a lot. Um, it's not something that generally comes up. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm usually not saying, like, the banjo on that album was incredible. Well, the one thing with the banjo is, like, I thought the first few times I listened to it is... It just seems that, like, you know, they keep going into these quiet moments where it's just uh, the singer by himself singing with, you know, a little quietness. And then once they, once it becomes, you know, louder and they kick up at the tempo, then the banjo comes in, like, like it's, I don't know, it's like, oh, oh, here comes a banjo! You know, like, <laughs> like they're summoning it, in a way. Yeah, it's, I think I think it's a similar structure throughout all of their songs, where it's like you know, yeah, quiet, quiet, passionate singing, banjo explosion. Yes, that that is like exactly what I was thinking. It's like, uh, all right, quiet, quiet, banjo tempo, emotions. And <laughs> see, I think I think yeah, that uh, it ultimately comes down to whether or not you emotionally connect with the album. Yeah. Um, on Sign No More, I definitely did, at least after seeing it live, uh, emotionally connect with the album, and I really thought it was very good. Um, this one, not so much at this point. Uh, I can, I, I can see the cracks in the surface, if you will, a little bit more. I can, I can see the structure a little bit more because I'm less caught up in it. You know, when, uh, 
I think it's a very effective potential structure when you have the, the quiet exploding to the loud. It's, it's yeah. sort of an emotional crescendo um, if it's done well. And I don't think it's done poorly on Babel. I just think it's, it's, you can more clearly see, like, this is what they're doing. Yeah. Also, um, was it, I, on the version I downloaded, it was the deluxe version. And it comes with a pretty, pretty good cover of The Boxer, originally by Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, I was I was fairly impressed by that because I'm a huge Simon and Garfunkel fan. I love the Boxer, one of my favorite of their songs, if not my favorite. Um, and so I'm sort of predisposed to not like a cover of that song. And I don't think it's I don't think it's incredible, um, but I think it's particularly solid considering yeah. that I'm I'm biased against it, a cover of it really. It's good because I already dislike it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good because no, it doesn't yeah, do that much different. Saying. Yeah. It, it's sort of it's sort of just a very straightforward like we like the song we're gonna sing it which is fine. Yeah, it's um, a folk group covering a folk group, so right, know. exactly. It's not like they're um, gonna throw a drum loop into it and make it like a I don't know techno remix. Now let me ask you this: uh, we, we've talked a lot about how Babel feels samey compared to Sino More. Do you think that's necessarily a bad thing? Because in my experience. A lot of times, if I see a band evolving, they go in a direction I don't like, um, and I end up liking their their output less thereafter. Um, for example, uh, I always use this one, even though they were never one of my favorite bands. I think they have the, the most clear change in evolution. Death Cab. Uh, Death Cab for Cutie was uh, one particular type of band for their first several albums. They were a little bit more downbeat, a little yeah. more introspective. And then all of a sudden, um, Ben Gibber got happy, you know, he got yeah. married, and Death Cab became like a power pop band for a little while. Yeah. <laughs> And I was not happy with that. Yeah, I'm a pretty big Death Cab fan, uh, but I truthfully just like did not get too into Narrow Stairs or no Codes and Keys. Uh, so See, I didn't get into Narrow Stairs, and I got a little bit more into Codes and Keys. I have to listen to Codes and Keys more. Truthfully, it's just one of those things I downloaded last year. Just kind of never really got around to it. I sure. But my favorite Death Cab albums, I really like Transatlanticism, and oh, me too. And their debut album, uh, something about airplanes, really good album. And yeah, I, I everything agree. from that era is really good. But I just hate, you know, using the hipsterish cliche, you know. Oh, I prefer their earlier work. But with Death Cab, I kind of could, you know, definitely. Well, I think it, I think it's because of the change in direction. I think that's a danger for a fan who evolves is that you're going to leave some fans behind, some fans who liked one particular thing that you were doing. So I wonder, do you think that it's better to, to evolve, or do you think it's better to sort of do the, the same thing that, you've, that you're good at and that your fans like? Uh, it's a tough question. I think that if it's a carbon copy, then it's generally a bad thing. Like, um, last, I think a good example might be last year. Do you know of Fleet Foxes? Uh, yeah, definitely. They, their uh, second album that came out last year, Helplessness Blues, I thought it sounded a lot like their debut album. And I kind of thought, you know, well, all these tracks could have just been on their first album. And that was almost a, you know, that was almost a con in the sense that if all of the tracks on your second album would sound perfectly normal and fine on your first album and not out of place, you know, then I usually do think that's a con because you're just kind of, you know, it kind of becomes formulaic. You're just kind of doing the same thing. And yeah, you will have some fans that like, that are very into the band's sound that will be happy with that. But also, you know, I do think there's a lot of merit in trying new things. And of course there's going to be a lot of people who are disappointed with new sounds, things that really don't work out for the band. But, you know, they'll win some new fans and they lose some old ones. I think it's a gamble, but I think it's, you know, 
I think it's kind of generally a, a bad thing if a band makes several albums that have the exact same sound. So I think maybe varying it up a little bit at first is generally a good thing. Uh, I, I, I agree with you in general. I have to disagree with you on Fleet Foxes. Helplessness Blues was actually my favorite album of last year, and it's because I thought the album took everything to the next level from Fleet Foxes, hmm. uh, the debut album. To me, what, what really changed things there was they, the instrumentation became much more lush, the songwriting became much more complex and accomplished. Um, and so that's actually, if, if I was going to make a comparison point, I'm glad you brought that up, because that's what I sort of hoped would happen with Mumford & Sons' second album, mm-hmm. um, which is like, you, you're good, you're very good, but why don't, we, why don't we see if we can't take the next step? And I think Fleet Foxes at least tried, and I would say executed on making the next step. Um, I saw them live after their, their debut album, and it was basically, you know, it was uh, Robin Pecknold on a stage just killing it with his near-perfect voice. Um, and when I saw them again, uh, it was uh, for Helpless Blues, it was in a much bigger venue. And, you know, the band, the backing band was larger and more lush. And it was, they became, you know, much more instrumentally, uh, much more complex in their instrumentation. Hmm. Which um, I thought was fantastic. Uh, and that's something that we haven't seen here. Although I wouldn't say that Mumford needs to have more complex instrumentation because they've always been good at that. Yeah. I think maybe lyrical depth is what I was looking for out of, out of Babel and didn't really get. Especially if you're going to name your album Babel, you would think that they would be focused on the words a little bit more. Oh, yeah. It's a little hard for me to compare because, you know, like I said, I've never really listened to the first album too much. But I could definitely see that, you know, you won your first album that was very successful, but just, you know, stepped up a bit. And, you know, just, I don't know how to quantify it, but just like more, more mature in a sense, or better what your original sound was. But, sure. Um, so I guess we should probably start wrapping this up. Let me ask you, I know you haven't actually written a review of it, um, and I hate to throw grades on something that I haven't sat down and reviewed, but if you were going to give it a grade, what would you give Babel? I would give it maybe a B plus. Okay. So, you know, because I do have to say, as a person who was like originally kind of turned off by Mumford and Sons, it did turn me on a little more, and you know, it did get me more into the band. It got me more open to their sound, and I do think it's a good album. I do think it's a, uh, you know, I think successful, but I don't think it's a, you know, a legendary or great album or one of the best I've heard this year. Yeah, I actually, I think I'd give it a little slightly lower grade. I was, I was leaning toward a B if I, if I had actually sat down to review this, I think. Um, and it was, when I first listened to it, it was like, I knew it was somewhere between the B and the A minus range. And as I've listened to it more and more, I've actually been a little less satisfied with it. Um, I think Sino More, like I've said a few times, was a very good album. I probably would have given that an A minus. And that, um, had I been more into music in 2010, it might have been in consideration, at least, for my top 10 list. I don't know that it would have necessarily made it. But it definitely would have been in the conversation, in a way that I don't I don't foresee Babel being in the conversation. Um, yeah, and that's partially because it's it's a very good year for music so far. I've, I've, there are a lot of albums that I really love, um, but also just because it doesn't it it didn't connect with me the way that Sino More did, uh, and that's I think it ends up being kind of a personal thing. I'm sure there are listeners out there, and I know if Rachel was here today, she'd probably be arguing the exact opposite, saying that you know this album really connected with me and I love it. Um, but it just didn't connect for me, so I would give it probably a B. It's fair. 
Um, all right, so that's our discussion of Babel. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that. And if you haven't checked out the album, it's probably worth your time. If you like Mumford & Sons a lot, you might like it more than me. If you don't like them a lot, maybe it'll start to turn you around like it did Darren. So um, definitely worth checking out. Now we're going to play a little bit of a game, gentlemen. Um, we're going to play Would You Rather. Uh, I assume you both know how it works, but in brief, I'm going to give you a scenario. I will open the floor to questions. Um, you can ask any question in the world. I have all the information you would need to uh, make a decision. And when you're done asking questions, we will uh, go ahead and have you place your votes. Uh, once again, I always like to give credit. The way we do this uh, is aping slightly uh, the Comedy Bang Bang podcast. If you don't listen to that, you really should. Scott Ackerman is much funnier than we are. Um, his show is great, and his Would You Rathers are better. So um, go over there and listen to that if you don't. But for now, I'm going to pose a question to Chris and Darren. All right. Would you rather never be able to speak again, but write beautifully, or only be able to communicate with people in person, which means no no phone, no internet, no mail, etc.? Wait, what? Can you repeat that? Yes. Uh, would you rather be able to speak, uh, never speak again, but write beautifully, or to only be able to communicate with people in person? When you say write beautifully, you mean like, I can compose the most eloquent text messages ever? created yeah i mean like you're basically you're sub shakespeare but you're on the same you're in the, you're in the conversation with like that's how well you write but you're never able to speak again hmm. and what was the other option the other option is uh you can um <clears throat> excuse me the other option is that you can only speak to people in person you can't, uh, you can't talk to them on the phone. You can't email them. You can't write them a letter. You can only speak to someone face-to-face. That's inconvenient. <laughs> that would make it hard for me to do my job. What if, what if you Skype them? Uh, no, you cannot Skype them. Um, all right. Even though I know there's going to be some sort of catch that I haven't anticipate yeah, yet you can't you can't vote because you're gonna miss out on some giant cash that's what happened last oh, time damn it all right um, you gotta you gotta investigate a little bit because there are things that you're gonna want to know hmm. i have all the information and there are some things that you don't know about this yet <laughs> you see it'd be very hard to have a job if you know you couldn't you could only talk to people face to face well, um, I mean, it'd just be all about FaceTime, right? You just have to be in the office all the time. You would take the, the meetings that came into the office. That's true. Or you could be working a different job. I mean, you're a waiter or something. So, so. Then all that matters is your FaceTime. Yeah, but, you know, in office jobs with today's technology, you know, you need to use email and all that stuff. Well, yeah, you're probably, you're probably not going to be a telemarketer. Let's put it that, that way. Yeah. But, like, if I could, if, you know, my issue is that I could only speak face-to-face, I would have to talk disproportionately to Chris, and he would really hate that. Like, if that I could, yeah, but you're not, you're, not, you're not voting based on what Chris would want. You're voting based on what you would want. Hmm. Um, could, you, to... could you text people if they were right next to you if you couldn't speak? Wait, if you couldn't speak? If you couldn't speak, but you could write beautifully. Would you be able yeah. to write? 
Oh yeah, you can. I mean, you could write on a whiteboard that you have on your on your chest. You could text someone and show them the phone while they're sitting right there, but you cannot say a word. So you're basically mute, but you can write beautifully, and you could be. You're not. You're not basically mute. You are by definition mute. You will never speak again. So you're mute, but if you wanted to, you could be the world's most prolific author. I did not say you could be prolific. You write beautifully. It doesn't mean you write quickly. Hmm. Oh, okay. So how long on average does it take me to write a text message beautifully? Uh, well, there are, there are revision processes. Okay. Um, so it's going to take it's going to take you probably anywhere between uh, twenty four and thirty six hours to write a beautiful text message. Holy crap! <laughs> there it is. Hmm. Um. Well, that would make it harder to have friends. <laughs> Yeah, basically, this question is kind of skewed at you becoming a recluse one way or the other. Um, or getting very inventive. <laughs> you guys give up too easily. You can still have friends. So you're basically... You just have to make plans way in advance so you can compose the text message asking them. Well, like, the other thing is you're basically Amish, right? How are you Amish? In terms because... of communication, like, you could still use... Like television, video games, just anything that we... You can still use the internet. You just yeah. can't communicate with someone over the internet. Hmm. So, like, I mean, you can read things on the internet. You can watch, you know, TV on the internet or whatever else you watch on the internet, Darren. Um, you can play video games. <laughs> you can what watch does television. That mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, you, could, you can do anything with technology except use it to communicate with another person. Hmm. So I wouldn't be able to post status updates and get likes for them on Facebook? You would not be able to post status updates on Facebook. That oh, would be a form of communication. Oh, no. Incre you would also not be able to like anyone else's status updates on Facebook. Oh, I have no problem with that. It's all about my own likes. Oh, okay. And it's... Chris Trice wouldn't be able to tweet anymore. Yeah. He would not be able to tweet anymore, no. Nor, he would be able, he would be able to read other people's tweets, but he would not be able to, you know interact with them at all via Twitter. You could bike over to your friend's house and high-five them for a really good tweet, though. Would I? I mean, it, like, un under the circumstances, though, I'd, be, I'd just be out on the podcast for forever, right? Yeah, you would not be on the podcast anymore if yeah. you chose uh, the not be able to speak because you can't speak. All right. Um, but also, if you chose the not be able to communicate except in person, you would not be on the podcast. So yeah, either way, you're not on the podcast. Oh, you're just anymore. tossing me off the podcast here, man. That's... I mean, that's really the, the whole point of this hypothetical is like, how can I get rid of Chris? Like, Jordan wants the podcast to become just him like reading from uh, various cookbooks for a solid hour. You know, I think people listen to that. I think our <laughs> listeners would love to hear what I have to say about certain recipes. Um, too much nutmeg in that one, I think, for example. This is the sort of great commentary you might get on the Reviewing podcast were it just me reading it out of a recipe book. Um, yeah, so either way, you're out of the podcast. That is true. All right. Um... Although you could theoretically write a script for the podcast and I could read out your parts in a, in a high-pitched voice like you're a girl. Yeah, but by the time I finish writing it, it would be like three months later. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So you could be on like four podcasts a year. Yeah. Um. All right, I think I'm ready to vote. Darren, do you have any more questions? Um. So if I want to write anything at all with the one the first choice, it takes me at least one day to write it down. 
Well, I guess that depends on what you're writing. If you want to write yes or no, it would probably take a little less time. Um, if you're composing anything with a lot of uh, depth to it, you know, even a full text message, yeah, it's going to take you a while. You write slowly because you write so beautifully. You ready to vote? I think so. All right. The floor is closed to questions. Chris, what is your vote? All right. I'm going to have to go for writing eloquently but not being able to speak ever again. Um, because what? the alternative sounds like sounds completely exhausting in terms of keeping <laughs> in touch with people. Exhausting. All right. Darren? I would have to go with the uh, same choice, you know, because... Just thinking about, you know, one is, they're both horribly inconvenient, I'll say that, but, you know, just not being able to communicate with people except face-to-face, -face, I think there's a lot of difficulties there that are hard to think about, like, if you want to visit a friend at their house to say the most basic thing, how would you know if they were home or not? Or if you want to go someplace, how would you know anything about it if you couldn't, you know? Talk to them in advance. Those are those are good points. Although the second one, I mean, you can still read about it on the internet. But I mean, like finding out if someone's home because you can only talk to them face to face. That would be a problem. Um, that's true. All right, and you guys are fortunate. You actually both picked the correct scenario. Um, so neither of you has to be killed, which is good because it was touch and go there for a minute. Um, that's how we play. Would you rather hear the review name podcast? Uh, this is something we'll probably be doing again at some point in the, in the future. So if you have any ideas for Would You Rather, go ahead and tweet them at us at ReviewBeNamed. Send them to ReviewBeNamedGmail.com or comment on the website. And with that, let's turn things over to Chris. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about Looper, the film Looper. Okay, so I, the uh, Friday night, saw uh, the new film with Joseph Looper with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis. Um, and uh, I was looking forward to it ever since I saw the first trailer. I just thought it looked kind of interesting. Um, was not my favorite film at the end of the day. I enjoyed it, but I think it had a lot of problems with it. I had a lot of problems with it. I think audiences in general are going to have a lot of problems with it, except for the fact that I think it's still holding relatively strong on Rotten Tomatoes. I'm not sure. I think it was 93% last time I checked. I'm not sure if that's held. But... Um, I thought it was good, it wasn't great, and it suffered from a number of problems, not least of which being that um, it really feels like two different movies fused together into one movie. Like, the first half of it is kind of going in one direction that was advertised in the trailer, and the second half throws in another element that almost completely comes out of nowhere and takes what was a an interesting kind of dramatic story. You have a character facing his future self who has come back in time. And so Joseph Gordon-Levitt wants one thing, whereas his future self, Bruce Willis, wants something else. And there's this debate ranging between this about whose life is it really? Is it the person who still has these years ahead of him? Is he get to make the choices about what's gonna, what's best for them? Or is it the person who is the older, wiser version of them who is essentially outranks him in terms of experience? Is it his life instead? Is he the one who gets to call the shots? Um, but as time goes on, that exploration, while it's still there, is kind of sidelined for a little bit more traditional, the question of, if you had the opportunity to kill Hitler as a baby, would you? Which I may I, I thought was a little more conventional than what the movie offered us at the beginning, 
which I found more interesting than the would you kill Hitler question. Um, what Darren, you also saw. What What do you think of that initial assessment? I'd have to say it's a pretty accurate assessment. I thought it was good. I didn't think it was great. The Like Chris said, the marketing was kind of strange in that basically what you've seen in commercials and trailers is totally different than what you kind of get. There's a lot of aspects of the movie that are not in the advertising or promotions at all for it. Um, and I... One thing I noticed is that after my friends and I left the movie theater last night, having seen it, we immediately had all these things like, wait, why did they, why did this happen? Why did this happen? So it was, there was a lot of, you know, plot holes and issues of that nature in it that just make you, you know, I'm sure that it's one of those things where the director would just say, oh, you have to suspend your disbelief or something like of that nature. But, you know, and if you do that, I think it does become a better movie, but to a point, it's almost like, I don't know, I, I take it as the fact that if you left the movie and one of the main things you took away from it was the plot holes, that's generally a bad thing. And it, I have to say, it was an entertaining movie, like, you know, there were no really quiet points or anything, although, yeah, there was at one point in the movie what I thought was a bit of a contrived ending, which was... Yeah, I'm not sure how much I should spoil, but let's just say Bruce Willis goes full Bruce Willis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, how much uh, should we really be spoiling right now? I, I, there's kind of something I want to, like, get out there. but I'm I would say go to. for it. I haven't seen the movie yet, and I plan to see it. Um, but if you have not seen Looper at this point, we've now officially opened the, the door to spoilers. So if you haven't seen Looper, we'll be back next week. Go ahead and turn off the podcast now, and you guys can go ahead and spoil Okay, so for anyone who's watched the trailers knows that time travel is a major element of this film and the world they established. But what the trailers completely hid is that also in this um, future world where the movie takes place, telekinesis is also a big part of it too. There are people who have the power of telekinesis. And whereas most people can't really do much with it, um, a lot of the plot centers around this boy who has like extremely powerful telekinetic powers. Like he can levitate cars and houses and stuff like that. Um, which it, it, it was, it was kind of a jarring introduction be- and it was, the concept wasn't even, I don't think it was introduced as artfully as it could have been. Um, there was a hefty bit of narration from Joseph Gordon-Levin at the beginning, which I think was necessary to get all the pieces in place because it's a dense movie. Like, like I said before, it's almost two different films compacted into one. And so in this narration you have at the beginning, like Joseph Gordon-Levitt is setting up all the stuff you need to know. And then, and while I thought a lot of that narration was done well, you get to this point where he's like, also people are telekinetic now. And it's just like him, like, trolling around with his friend in the car and his friend is like levitating things and stuff. And you're just like, Oh, uh, all right. I, they're telekinetic. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. They um, never really explain why suddenly people in the future have telekinetic powers. Yeah. And it, it becomes integral to the, the rest of the film. Um, and in, in a way that's obvious it's going to, cause they kind of like abandon it after the first 10 minutes, but it's, you know, it, it's just obvious, like, oh, gee, I wonder when this is going to, scene is going to come around again. I bet this is going to be important. 
Um, and going back to what you said a minute ago, Darren, is like any film about time travel is going to have your issues. Like time travel yeah. is a concept that um, films, television shows, comics, I mean, no matter who's dealing with it, you're never going to satisfy everybody. You're never going to be able to cover every base. You're never going to be able to fill every pothole. You're never going to be able to make the complete loop that actually makes sense that you aren't going to be able to dissect. Um, so I, I usually, when approaching something that deals with time travel, just kind of expect to just kind of go with it. Just kind of like just intend to just give a lot more leeway, a lot more slack in terms of the usual suspension of disbelief. Um, Looper was interesting, though, in that you essentially had several characters almost look straight at the audience but they're, they're talking to somebody else but it's they had this moments where characters would kind of like intensely look at somebody else almost look at the audience and say don't think about it don't think too hard about it and i think this happened at least twice if not three times you had uh, jeff daniels do it you had bruce willis do it so it was oh not actually breaking the fourth wall but very close to breaking the fourth wall and if that's like your best sell for how this is all going to make sense and how it's all going to work. It's not the most artful way to get the job done. Just having you, <laughs> Ryan Johnson through the mouthpiece of his characters be like, stop thinking about it. Stop thinking about it. Just enjoy Yeah. It. As a rule, I don't like movies that are like, just don't pay any attention. It'll make sense. Yeah. Um, so that was a thing. Um, I, I will say that there were some very effective uses of time travel there. I think, one of my favorite um, being the scene where, um, oh, hang on a second. I'm going to get his name. Um, where uh, Frank ben Brennan, who plays a looper from the future who has escaped back in time, is on the run. And um, the, the, the mob in the quote-unquote present finds a way to, a very unique and terrifying way to torture him which I thought was probably one of the better sequences of the film and probably the best use of the time travel concept in the film. And for me was maybe the highlight. Uh, if, if not for the very, very adept performances from both Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Bruce Willis, I thought both did a phenomenal job, but um, this particular scene was where I think the time travel was actually used the best. Um, now, um, how does Joseph Gordon-Levitt, fair playing Bruce Willis because in the trailer I just like the first thing that comes up in my thought and the first thing they mention in like the little making of you see before movies uh the making of a looper is like they don't look alike and even after the makeup th that apparently took him like four or five hours a day I don't think he looks like a young Bruce Willis well there's one I... part in the movie where um you know kind of shows uh Joseph Gordon-Levitt becoming Bruce Willis and it's like it happens just kind of randomly like it's like one day he's just Gordon Levitt, and then it's like one year later it's Bruce Willis, kind of. And it, you're right, it is kind of an issue, but I'm not sure, you know, exactly how they could have overcome that otherwise. Well, yeah, I'm, and I'm willing to yeah. spend my disbelief on that, obviously, because I like both the actors. They, they actually, for me, they, they took care of that relatively easily. I, I personally found the makeup very distracting. I didn't think it, like, at the end of the day, it was like a lot of makeup that didn't really work. Yeah. Um, and but th there's a line where um one of the first times Joseph Gordon-Levitt meets Bruce Willis, his future self, where Joseph Gordon-Levitt says something like, "Um, it's strange to look at you. You don't look like me, but I know it's me." 
sort of thing. And like Bruce Willis explains that that's an effect of the time travel and the time distort. And for me, that cleared it up. Like that was, that was what all I needed to be, to be honest with you. I'm like, Oh, okay. That kind of makes sense to me. It's like, this is something that can't ever happen. So it's, it yeah. makes sense that I, I can buy that. Like, sure. I buy that. Yeah. I, I thought that was, I, I could have, I could have been solid with that and not even had to deal with the makeup. And I think I would have been fine. Um, Fair enough. But I, I agree. I, I agree with you, Darren. The, uh, the the flash forward sequences when he's aging and all of a sudden he's Bruce Willis was very jarring. It was just like, oh, oh. All, all right. Also, made this a really <laughs> random point about this movie. It's it was kind of interesting the way they did the whole future sequence because you know you have a lot of movies that are like this is in the future and everything is high tech and different. But it was just kind of interesting how they made everything kind of low tech and the same in the future in this movie. Yeah. But it was also just kind of random that they had all these weird little things like from the future thrown into this modern world. Like, you know, you could understand like gadgets got more futuristic and stuff, but randomly motorcycles are powered by a jet engine and hover. Is that the only one who was like, why is everything else the same, but they have hover cycles? <laughs> yeah, I, I would have at least expected the uh, the cars to have gotten to have progressed a little bit if we have like flying jet engine cycles. Um, well, the cars I, I think have like the, a special fuel thing going on. Like they all have a yeah, but these, out of them. these were like 2010, 2012 model cars, though. They were all yeah. driving around supposedly in the year 2040. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, I, I've been ragging on the movie for like about. 10 solid minutes now, but I, I didn't really dislike it, is what I want to say. It's it it had a lot of problems though. I I actually think that it would have fared better as like a miniseries or as a drama on a network that could allow for a set end to it. Because I I think that a lot of the concepts and a lot of the ideas that this movie played with were doable, but they would need a much larger span of time to develop them over. And I, I think a lot of the plot holes, a lot of the problems were parsing out with it. And this weird shift in focus really comes down to this idea of like, it was just like everything in the kitchen sink approach to making this movie. It, it, it was yeah. a lot of, there was a lot of ground to cover and it wasn't always covered very well because just economy of scale you had two hours it's a long movie but even still it feels rushed to me so if you had had maybe two seasons to let this same idea kind of develop over i think you could have seen a much better much tighter execution of all the ideas that are presented here because there, there's a lot of interesting ideas that they explore and there's a lot of interesting work to do with these characters and it's a fairly interesting world in which they create but in when it's all compressed the way this movie does, things start falling apart. Yeah. It definitely did feel like they were trying to put a lot of different plots and subplots into this movie. Well, fair enough. I still plan to see it at some point, but uh, living as I do in Ann Arbor without a car, um, I don't know when that'll be. So at some point I will see Looper. It's um, it's worth a look. I wouldn't rush out to the theaters to see it unless you're a huge fan of sci-fi. If you're a huge fan of sci-fi or any of the actors involved. Um, oh, and I, I have to mention that um, my favorite performance came from the 
ever-excellent Jeff Daniels. He had a small but very meaningful role in the movie, and uh, his scenes were by far my favorites. Whenever he was Did he play Will McAvoy? <laughs> eh, no. <laughs> he played Dumber. I would see the movie if he was just playing his character from the newsroom. <laughs> he actually played Still Dumber change Dumb Dumber. News. <laughs> I would also see that. Um, well, I like Ryan Johnson. I like Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, I loved them last time they worked together in Brick. Yeah. So this is a movie I will see. Um, slightly less excited about it now after hearing that it's not as great oh, as I hoped. Sorry, but fair enough. You've, you've made me very sad today, boys. Um, with that, I think it's time uh, to announce the winner of the Rachel Tarts Memorial Award for Best Performance of the Week. I'm on the edge uh, of my seat. This is very, very close this week. Very complicated. Uh, we had to, you know, knock some points off of characters who had more negative stories. We had to, to add some other columns on certain characters. I don't even know how they do it. Um, thank, thank God we have our people tabulating these votes. Um, they're great at The winner... Math. We pay them for math. Yeah. The, the winner of the, tw- uh, of, of the Rachel Tarf Memorial Award for Best Performance of the Week, in a twist, is Donald Glover. <laughs> the only one to come unscathed. Donald, Donald Glover, the only one to walk out of our newsroom <laughs> unscathed. Wasn't even actually the center of a story this week, um, but he was complimented by Chevy Chase uh, in a tirade by Chevy Chase that shit on community and that said Louis C.K. was not really that funny. So, Donald Glover, you win the week. Um, I'm sure you're listening to this right now. You should come down and uh, grab your trophy and your small cash prize from the Ruby named offices. Um, so, come hang out with us. We like you a lot. You won the week. Congratulations. Um, with that, Everyone should check out the website, ReviewToBeNamed.com. You should follow us on Twitter, at ReviewToBeNamed, or you should email us at ReviewToBeNamed at gmail.com with ideas for future segments, with nominees for the Rachel Tarf Memorial Award for any given week, with ideas for uh, who would win in a fight, ideas for Would You Rather, and any other games we play, um, and just uh, to tell us what you like and what you don't like about the podcast. So hopefully we'll hear from you. If we don't, we'll just keep doing what we do. Um, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a very special installment of the Review Name podcast, which will be our second happy hour podcast. So uh, come prepared for that next week. Um, with that, thanks a lot for listening. Have a good week.